Welcome to North Beats from North Beach. I'm your host, Corey Luna, and today I interviewed Reek Havoc. This fella has been in the scene for many years, going into probably maybe the 70s and 80s. Originally a drummer, and he found himself just naturally drawn into the amazement of synthesizers. And from there, he's blossomed into a, a flourishing career as he's gone to many different genres, working with rock bands, pop bands, video games, and and beyond. He's even done sound for a VR video game, and, and, and even beyond what we talked about that I even know about. Reek Havoc was such a fun guy to talk to, a lot of fun, and I really hope you enjoy his interview. It was a pleasure to really talk to him for once that is not so brief. I was uh, aware of his work when I first purchased a, a Waldorf NW1 wavetable earlier this year and I started looking up tutorials on YouTube and his popped right up because he used to work for Waldorf and he did some of the demonstrations. And from there, uh, back in March, I actually got a, the chance to meet him in person very briefly. I was just a photographer running around taking pictures and I saw him, had got a chance to say hello for a sec while he was doing demonstration for someone took a quick pic, and that was about it. But since then, I stayed in contact with him. He and I Skyped earlier this year, for, and he actually helped me out on figuring out the, the NW1 wavetable, which was fantastic, and it's become a very key part of, of my modular set, which is really great. Please check out, if you enjoy this podcast, please go to patreon.com forward slash northbeats. Please contribute a dollar wherever you can. I don't care. It could be a 25 cents if that's even a possibility of increment on that website anything helps because i'm just doing this by myself and, and i'm having a ball doing it and i'm throwing my own money towards it myself you know i've already invested a f- you know my money in order to make sure that i can get the best quality music and and audio i can for everything even with my involvement with pete i threw down and bought a zoom h4n just to make sure that we could get crisp, clean audio recordings in in stereo to make sure that we have everybody recorded greatly because everybody that we that we invite to come play at Peaked are fantastic musicians, artists that we want to hear and listen to the best audio quality possible. So if you can go to patreon.com forward slash northbeats throwing a dollar to help us out, help me out, continue on this wonderful project that I've decided to just push myself to continually do. That would be wonderful. This podcast was recorded October 16th, 2019. It is now April 24th, 2020, and it's taken me up to seven months just to edit this podcast. We are well into the pandemic of our time. With that aside, please listen to Podgerta Modcast by Tim Held in Seattle, Washington. And all the shows we were doing in the Bay Area are now virtual, such as Resident Frequencies, Resident, and soon-to-be Peaked. Also, the San Francisco Electronic Music Meetup. Now please enjoy Reek Havoc. Reek, thank you very much for taking my interview for North Beach Podcast. Great. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. So, uh, well, I was, so to start off, uh, how did you get into synthesizers? Um, you know, I got into synthesizers decades ago um, with just nothing more than just an interest in just the crazy and wild sounds that they make. I was... Um, uh, a musician, but just an uh, acoustic drummer back in the, uh, you know, started in fourth grade um, in elementary school. And uh, in the mid, early, yeah, mid 70s, around 76, 77, uh, my roommate came home one day with a, um, with a flyer for a 
synthesizer programming course that was in uh, downtown Los Angeles. Um, uh, he wasn't even a musician, but he, he also had a, just an interest and a love for synthesizers. So we both, I had no reason to learn synthesize, uh, synthesis programming at the time, but just uh, for my interest in it, uh, decided to take the class. And there was a two-hour lab at the end of the of the class that we could play with mini Moogs and uh, Arp Odysseys and uh, synthesizers of that era. Um, and shortly after taking that class, um, electronic drums started to hit the market. Things like uh, uh, the Pollard Syndrome. Uh, in fact, I still have my very first uh, Syndrome. Um, little smaller, weird little devices like Snare, companies like that um, I got into. And then in the um, <laughs> early 80s, um, just kind of hit, got hit by a three-pronged um, tidal wave of electronic drums. I read an article about the Simmons SDS-5. I saw Bill Burford playing with King Crimson uh, here at LA, uh, in LA at the Roxy, cool. um, playing this hybrid acoustic and electronic Simmons kit. And then, <laughs> lo and behold, uh, a week later, there's the Simmons Lovely. kit in the window of the Guitar Center, downtown Hollywood. First one in the United States, and I wrote a check for it with money I didn't have. <laughs> um, wow. I, I became, um, due to a, a bad decision on Guitar Center's part, I ended up contacting Simmons directly and uh, became their first uh, U.S. demonstrator. Yeah, um, and uh, the uh, uh, Glenn Thomas, who was running Simmons U.S. at the time, um, this is before actually before he actually set up shop here, but he ended up setting up shop uh, Simmons Group Center here in the United States. Uh, he was the one that turned me on to the idea. Um, he said lots of guys in London were making wow. money renting out the Simmons gear to the studios, and then they'd get hired as programmers. So I made some crummy little flyers on my dot matrix printer and uh, within sent them out to maybe less than 30 studios. And within a week, I started getting phone calls. Um, the second gig I got, the first wow. one was with uh, studio musician Greg Fillingaines, And the second one was with the Pointer Sisters for their breakout album. And um, that, that was my first platinum album and their first platinum album. And um, it sold over 3 million copies. Yeah, it was pretty wild. I mean, uh, you know, back in, in that time period, in the 80s, the music technology was advancing tremendously. And you could really hear it <laughs> in, you know, the next, you know, six months to year of music that was being released. Uh, you could hear the new sounds, and people had their, you know, their hands on these wider palettes, you know, these bigger boxes of crayons, as I like to call it, um, um, of, of all this incredible stuff, and it was so inspiring, and it was just a, a wave, and analog synthesis with, with the Simmons stuff led to uh, digital with uh, digital samples, and creating my own sounds and that led to computers and drum machines and um, pretty much all that was just self-taught, just my interest in it and turned into my career. Um, I continued with that for about doing that studio work for about seven or eight years uh, and then turned that uh, focus towards post-production audio um, and uh, doing what I do today, which is being a sound designer. But um, using synthesizers for a lot of the work I do, and I've been hired by oh, companies. You know, I've done factory pro presets for Simmons and Dynacord and really? Emu Systems, and um, I've worked on product design what with all that? those companies and uh, delivered samples for them, as well as Kawai and. Um, uh, Yamaha and okay. uh, and a few others, and then created one of the first uh, CD-ROM drum libraries, Heavy Hitters Greatest Hits, with uh, drum sounds from Tommy Lee, Alan White, and Jim Keltner. 
That was, gee, let's think. Heavy Hitters probably came out, um, I'm guessing, 86, 87. Um, and before that, I created a, um, a drum album. Uh, there were these albums. I don't know how old you are. I'm probably a lot older than you are. Um, but there used to be these records you could buy called Drum Drops. And there were drum patterns. This is before drum machines. There were drum patterns in a song type format. So it would, you know, it change for like verse and chorus, and would have a layout about, you know, this part goes for eight bars, and this goes for six, and this one goes back for another eight bars, and so on. So I contacted the guy. He, I think, had pretty good success with that. The guy who had made those and asked if he was interested in doing a drum version of that. Um, which he wasn't. He was a staunch opponent of electronic drums. So I created my own, uh, produced my own album called Havoc Tracks and sold, uh, uh, I mean, for, for the product, sold, you know, hundreds so of those. the companies that you've worked for, anything, uh, uh, or is it them hiring them out of. to do but, a particular uh, job? Or have you, um, uh, but that, that got me a lot of notoriety and, a, um, a, and still to this date I do uh, programming and... Um, Sure. Beta testing for companies like uh, Rosm Electro, who Dave Rosm, of course, used to be Emu Systems, and um, work with Dave Smith Instruments. Who Dave Smith, of course, used to be Sequential Circuits. Um, I do work with Arturia, um, GeForce Software, um, and you know, a variety of other companies. Have they been hiring you as like a independent contractor to do particular jobs, or are you being hired on with some of these companies as an employee? Most of them uh, as independent contractors. Okay. Um, I've got, um, um, I, I work, you know, self-employed here under the guise of Sounds Amazing. And, um, uh, and a lot of it's just kind of piecework for, uh, you know, particular product or a particular trade show, um, things like that. And in between I do, you know, sound design for, you know, everything from, um, you know, a little, um, what do they call that, uh, kind of casual games to um, everything from that up to surround theaters and virtual reality games and uh, things like that. I'm working on a couple big projects right now. Um, one for, um, uh, I can tell you about this one because this your article probably won't be out. One for a Dr. Seuss project. There'll be a traveling exhibit. Oh, wow. And um, um, another couple ones that are still under NDA that I can't talk about yet. Okay. Now with with uh, sounds amazing. This is your company that you started, and uh, when when did you uh, decide to start your company, and how has it evolved, and what's the what are the uh, I guess the different uh, categories that you you cover? Well, it it's all started. It started uh, <clears throat> back when I was doing the electronic drum work. Um, and renting out my gear, um, I first called the company Wreak Havoc Synthrum Rentals. And, um, and then when I started making my own um, drum pads and drum triggers, uh, which I did at kind, of, kind of at a necessity for my own needs, um, and in, in researching what I wanted and what I needed, I found that there just wasn't, wasn't the exact product that, that I wanted. And um, so I thought I'd make, you know, I'd make my own pads and I'd make my own drum triggers. And I thought, well, I'd contacted a few stores who had said, you know, if you do find some triggers, let us know because we have customers wanting them. So um, I came out with my own uh, line of products and changed the name of the company to Drastic Plastic um, back in, you know, after a couple of years. Um, and then when I started doing um, digital audio work uh, and I released my first uh, CD-ROM, um, and I was selling sound chips for the Simmons products, and uh, I could make custom sound chips for the Oberheim drum machines and the Lin machines and things like that. Um, I came up with the uh, name for uh, Sounds Amazing to differentiate the two types of products that I was selling. Um, and at a certain point, um, Sounds Amazing was doing well enough where I decided to uh, get away from the all the toxic chemicals and things that were required for making drum pads and triggers and just work on my sound design work. For Drastic Plastic, were you manufacturing the physical products yourself? Yes. 
Yeah. So I was build, wow. literally building them myself. And then as I started getting busier, um, I would hire people to do the assembly work for me. Wow. And then I made some custom, um, custom designs for a few artists um, who some wanted larger pads. Um, uh, Tommy Lee uh, want, from Motley Crue wanted an entire electronic drum kit um, that I designed for him, which was kind of the feature point of the uh, Dr. Feelgood wow. tour, where this giant uh, drum set that looked like a set of raw speakers uh, was hanging on a 120-foot track uh, up in the rafters of the arena. And halfway during the show, the band would leave the stage, the guitar player would do his solo, <clears throat> they get Tommy up um, up into the rafters via uh, a chain lift, and he'd get on his electronic drum kit, test it all out. Uh, once he was good to go, they'd cue the guitar player that he could end the solo whenever he was ready. And, of course, <laughs> as should with a Motley Crue concert, the guitar amp blows up at the end of the guitar solo. And then um, uh, the house lights die. They unveil, they take the uh, black cloak off of the electronic drum kit, and um, spotlights all go up to Tommy Lee up there and cusses at the audience and the starts playing and the whole 120-foot track starts lowering down from the ceiling. Lowers down low enough to where the bottom of the drum kit is just high enough to where the people in the audience can't reach it. And the whole bottom is clear, um, sorry, clear plexiglass. So, um, so as he's going up overhead, people can see, um, can see him. And um, um, he motors all goes out a ways and it stops and it pivots right and left. It, it can spin around, um, not upside down, but spin around you know, left to right or right to left, um, <laughs> 360 degrees. And would end up all the way at the, at the back of the arena. So the kids in the cheap seats suddenly had Tommy Lee right in their face. Um, and then he would motor about halfway back and finish off the drum solo and you know, lasers and pyrotechnics and all of that. And, um, but yeah, that was a, that was a feat. <laughs> it must've been, I've seen the video footage of, you know, a concert of that. I've never seen, experienced it personally, but that's fascinating that you actually got to design that kit. Yeah. The, um, um, he, Tommy wanted to fly his entire acoustic kit off the stage. And I was at a rehearsal, um, with the band. I used to do a lot of work with the guys in Motley Crue, um, I set up home studios for Mick, Tommy, and uh, uh, and uh, Nikki, and um, worked on a few albums, worked on a few tours, um, but um, overheard Tommy talking with the uh, uh, staging company about flying his uh, acoustic kit out across the studio. I mean, sorry, across the arena during the concert, but he uh, they said no, it's too complicated, too heavy. And uh, so I kind of stepped in. I said, you know, I can make you an electronic drum kit that would weigh probably a quarter of the amount of your acoustic kit. And the cool thing about it is it could look like anything. <laughs> you know, it could look like we can make a flying saucer. We can make, you know, anything. And Tommy's eyes lit up. And they said, well, give us some ideas. So I met up with a friend of mine, uh, Brian Sisson, who's a graphic artist. And he and I brainstormed some um, concepts. And Brian drew them up. And we had... Uh, like I said, a flying saucer. We had, my favorite one was this giant spider kind of laying on its back and Tommy would be sitting on his stomach and the arms curled up and overhanging above like kind of they were reaching in towards him, but the symbols were hanging off of the spider's arms. Um, we had the, the one that he ended up choosing was what looked like a set of raw speakers. And that's the one. Um, so I built the, the uh, pads and did all the programming and built the uh, big rack that sat um, uh, back underneath the stage, and the small rack that flew with the uh, electronic or the uh, electronic kit up on the platform. And um, luckily, at the time, somebody had just come up with a uh, MIDI extender because we had to run MIDI oh, about 400 feet, and you know the MIDI spec is <laughs> 20. <laughs> wow, um, 400 feet MIDI. Yeah. And even his, um, even his headphones um, had to go so far out that we ended up using the speaker out of a Crown D50 amplifier um, to run his headphones. I mean, it wasn't turned up all the way, but uh, the headphone out just wasn't enough because once he got, was 
you know, fully in front of the House speakers and started getting farther and farther away, that delay was throwing his timing off. So his headphones were blasting. And he would come back, he would come back from the little experience and with uh, sometimes with blisters on his ears because the headphones got so hot. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's crazy. I'm, I'm sure his hearing, I mean, those, you know, in those shows, I worked with a lot of the heavy metal bands. They, I did a lot of uh, triggering work um, for, for the tours. And, you know, we'd bring the studio sounds that they'd work for days on, put them in the, uh, uh, we used emulator samplers primarily. I used E3s and E4s. And, um, and they could, you know, trigger the, these glorious studio sounds from their acoustic kit on stage. And the uh, sound mixers loved it because they had, you know, this great sound source that was available and they mixed in a little bit of the acoustic drums and everything was tuned to work as one sound and uh, they'd get these big bombastic sounds live as well as, you know, they could fly in, um, uh, you know, extra guitar parts or trigger vocal parts. Um, the drummers that I worked with a lot of times carried a lot of extra weight uh, beyond drumming because they had samplers that they could just trigger and so we'd have little short little parts that um, were short enough that if the, you know, if the, the band was playing a little faster, a little slower, you know, it, everything still worked well. Um, with Alan White with Yes, he sometimes he was playing keyboard parts and extra guitar parts and then timpanis and bells and all these overdubs of different instruments that they would do on the albums uh, were able to provide with, uh, you know, digital samplers and extra sets of pads or triggers on the drum kit. Very cool. And with um, your your company and, and all these different jobs you've, you've done over the years, how have you evolved over the years in, in this? Well, it just, um, you know, the market keeps changing, the technology keeps changing. Um, so I, I try my best to stay on top of, um, of all the new technologies and new trends and um, use these tools in uh, the production work that I do. Um, I get, um, luckily, um, I get um, uh, product endorsements from um, a variety of companies that help me out with um, um, some of the software and the hardware that I use for my work. Um, now that if the last four years or so, I've been into uh, the modular, the Eurac modular synthesizer world and um, use uh, specific Eurac modules at time for doing real specific processing needs. And um, it, I've got the uh, Eurac really well integrated in with my uh, uh, computer system using either Cubase or Nuendo. And um, so I can, you know, I can program specific control voltages and things like that uh, in MIDI via, via Cubase and Nuendo and send that to the uh, send that to the rack and control that in real time and record that and be able to, you know, recall that and modify it and tweak that and, you know, use some of the heavy filtering and um, um, routing and all the other different modulations that the Eurac provides uh, to kind of quickly and easy process some audio to, for, you know, interesting results. Absolutely. And that's something that I, I have to really commend you on because um we, when you and I Skyped uh, earlier this this year, back in, I think it was either April or, or May, I had some questions about using the Waldorf NW1 module, because I had just recently got it at the time, and I was having a little difficulty with it, and you helped me out get right. through it. And from there, actually, the video that I sent you uh, of me playing back uh, a couple months ago, it was like a 20 or 30 minute long track I was doing live, it went really well, uh -huh. and I wouldn't have been able to do that live performance without your guidance. Oh, well, thank you. That's great. I, I, I'm glad to hear that. I always appreciate that. I've always had a, a, a lean towards um, education as, as I was one of the, you know, the first guys using um, electronic drums around. Um, I decided to uh, start writing articles, you know, you know, I, I basically sucked in English at school, but, you know, I would see these articles and, um, and think, you know, well, you know, of course I understand the topic and you know, I could, I could write an article on this and that. And a lot of the, a lot of my focus was on, um, 
you know, educational use. I talked about um, in early modern drummer magazines, I wrote articles on triggering, on um, uh, choosing your audio amplification for electronic drums, because you know, these are all issues that drummers never had to deal with. They never had to deal with amplification or mixing boards or uh, any of that. Um, so it was kind of the things that I learned along the way I was happy to share with others um, in the form of, of articles for, like I said, electronic musician, um, music technology, which kind of uh, came and went here in the States, um, and um, um, an electronic musician magazine. You know, there's a, a brand new one that just recently came out, and they're on only uh, issue two, which is a Waveform magazine that I'm not sure if you are aware of yet. Yes, I've actually got uh, a couple of those and, and read volume two when I was on my uh, Seattle trip. Oh, wonderful. And you're actually just in their, <laughs> in fact, in, Pat, you're in their, their backyard because they're, they're out of... Uh, yeah, Patchworks puts yeah, that yeah. out. Yeah, I was trying to get over there, but uh, um, I was with my daughter and the grandkids, and so yeah, it was yeah, more fun. Understandably. <laughs> yeah, that's been a really fun magazine that uh, I've been have, have had the opportunity to uh, contribute in a small way here and there. Excellent. Yeah, it's it's a cool old magazine, but uh, yeah, the um, um, you know the people like Chris Meyer doing uh, Learning Modular and uh, Ben Divkid, uh, uh, you know both those guys. Um, I really always appreciate you know the work, the educational work that they provide and insight to different modules, and that. And um, I've done some similar things. Um, in fact, when I first got into doing the Eurorack stuff, I got hired by uh, the U.S. distributor for Waldorf, and Waldorf had their uh, small modular offering with the KB37 uh, keyboard and the variety of modules, the NW1 and their uh, uh, the Mod 1 and um, the DVCA and and that, and um, so that was my first, um, that's how I, you know, I, I, I had a uh, Moog Voyager, and I had an expander for that, and I was playing around with some routing of that, um, and about a mother 32, um, and that was before I got into the Waldorf stuff, and it just, it was okay, but it just, I, I wanted something more, and I was about ready to pull the trigger on something, and then um, uh, a gentleman I've known in the industry for decades now runs MV Pro Audio, um, he's a, a distributor, and he picked up the Waldorf line and asked me if I would uh, help out with the Waldorf products. So uh, since then, um, I've done stuff for them. I've done stuff for um, Dave Smith Instruments and um, Rosam Electro, um, doing uh, video demos. And um, I've been doing trade shows with Rosam for the last few years. I did the last, I did the last NAMM show and um, um, Synthplex out here. And, um, but so yeah, they're, they're, they're good guys. And I've known those guys for decades because they used to do a lot of work with EMU systems back in the day. Is that how you got involved with, with, uh, d uh, covering Synthplex? Um, uh, with, with Rossum Electro. Yeah. I was, uh, I was there working at Synthplex with, uh, with Rossum. Okay. Yeah. And again, that was a wonderful experience. I, I had the opportunity to, uh, be a, an event photographer for, and just had a wonderful time meeting amazing people throughout the entire weekend cool yeah yeah that was a really good that was a really well done event i'm looking forward to uh next year and i'm just starting to uh reach out to uh, i've got a couple few different companies that want me to work for them in some capacity um at nam so we're just trying to figure out who's doing what um uh who's going to nam or who's just going to go to synthplex and, um, you know, where I can help out as well as, um, you know, I still play drums and, um, I did a couple of years in a row demonstrating for two box, um, who, uh, makes an outstanding, in, in my opinion, the best electronic drum kit on the market. Um, the, 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 uh, drum at five, it, um, to me, the sounds are just night and day above any offerings from, you know, the big companies like Yamaha and Roland, um, the playability, the sound quality, uh, doesn't have a lot of the bells and whistles. Like, uh, I like the Roland, you know, the bigger kits that have the onboard mixer that's just right there accessible. 
and uh, built-in effects, and the two box doesn't have any of that, but it's just straight ahead, uh, 24-bit samples, multi-sample drums, up to 127 uh, samples per drum, all, you know, velocity switched, and just excellent recordings. Um, and they continue to uh, add to their library, and the library is all free to users, so they're not charging you for any new sound banks that they release. It's all free, and you can mix and match, as well as they give you a tool that you can um, use, use your own sounds and make, uh, make sounds in their format, load them to the memory card, and drop them right into the machine. And that was as a that, drummer, have you? Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, and that was one of the things that was always holding me back from pulling the trigger on, you know, like the big, you know, rolling kit was the, you know, the ability to load my own sounds in there. You know, um, I think now you can load a, some sounds into some of those units, but at the time, you couldn't at all, um, and you couldn't load multi samples in there. You could load a single sample in there, and you, you know, change the. Uh, uh, the gain via velocity, of course, but uh, that was about it. The two box stuff and the you know the snare drums probably have you know thirty forty samples in them. So when you hit the drum really light, you're getting a sample of of a drum just being lightly lightly tapped on the head. And you know that the tonality changes so drastically um, from a light hit to a hard hit that without that, you know, you lose a lot of musicality. Um, and a lot of the playability, and, and it, it really waves that flag that it's an you know electronic drum kit. But that two box boy, I'd be I'd be hard pressed to I couldn't get that quality of a sound you know in my little studio here with my I've got a really nice DW kit that I had custom built thirty something years ago. But um, but you know I don't have a room and you know you know big ambient room and tons of great mics and the time and the patience and this two box kit just sounds great. Just sounds great and it's super playable. There's, there's no limitation on the sounds, <laughs> you know. So cymbals ring out for you know seven, eight, nine seconds, you know. Or if you make your, you know, if you make your own, you could, you know. I I made some ride cymbal samples from this ride cymbal I've had for decades. That the, the sounds ring out for like twenty seconds, which in the end I realized was way too long. <laughs> I went back and edited it and, and, brought, and brought him back in. But it's really nice at the end of a song just to have that symbol kind of decay naturally, you know, and um, and just, you know, the playability. I just, if there was one word I could describe it, it's just musical. It's just, it's a very musical kit to play. As a drummer, what what uh, symbols do you usually go for? Like, um, brand-wise. On the, on the, oh, on the acoustic kit, um, most of my symbols are Zildjian, but I have a variety of other symbols that I've had over the years. Um, some Sabians um, that I use for stacking. I've got a, a variety of uh, Wuhan China symbols that I really like. I like that real raw, dirty, uh, dry sound that the Wuhans have over um, the kind of better quality symbols, basically, that uh, you know the Chinese, Chinese symbols that like Zildjian makes. I just like that. I've got one in particular that I've had for, I don't know, 30-something years. It's just kind of my, it, no matter what I put on my drum kit, it's usually always that farthest, you know, right-hand symbol there, that China. It's just, it's an old progressive rock drummer's, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> fallback is having that China there. Oh, yeah, they're, they're great. And as a drummer, I'm curious about what have you noticed and appreciate about modular synthesizers in terms of drum modules? Well, the, you know, the, um, um, the uh, drum module thing, you know, at first when I got into this, I didn't think, you know, I wanted to go more synthesis. I wanted to go more, you know, kind of sort of East Coast synthesis and some, you know, West Coast sort of, you know, sound design work um, and really didn't get... Uh, graduate towards, uh, you know, sort of leaning towards the uh, drum modules at first. Um, then when um, Rosam came out with the uh, simulator a couple years ago, um, I used that primarily as a drum sampler, drum and, and CV sampler. It's DC coupled, so I can record control voltages with that, which are really handy. So if I come up with some crazy control voltage string you know, using one or two modules or three modules or whatever, 
Um, I can sample that and, and have banks of those. Um, but anyway, so I started making, so I've got uh, one of my racks. I have um, three racks plus the, um, plus the uh, well, I guess that's four. I got two, two uh, six RU racks and one three RU rack and one um, 12 RU rack. And then the, uh, um, and then the uh, KB-37, the Waldorf. But the uh, the tip top uh, rack is I've turned into primarily a drum rack, and um, just been playing around with um, you know things that that playing an electronic drum I typically wouldn't have a lot of access to, which is kind of real time modulation um, and um, you know things like uh, burst modules and things like that are are a lot of fun to play around with. I've got um, the Baco uh, burst, you know, that has a predictability and distribution, and um, and you can also set the way that those um, multiple repeats go. They could be um, similar in timing, or they could go from fast to slow, or slow to fast, um, you know, as, as they ratchet. So, so that's kind of interesting. And I've got a Pamela's workout, Pamela's new workout, and playing around with. Um, some of the randomization between uh, Pamela's <laughs> and the Arturia uh, Beat Step Pro, and it's just a it's it's kind of just a different different thing, you know. And I, the more I play around with it, you know, it's like all of us. It's like, oh, I need this and I needed that, and not using this, so I'll sell this off and buy that, and um, I just added a um, just added a um, AMS. Um, dual looping delay into my system, and a um, <laughs> and a, um, a Dofer uh, A162 uh, dual trigger delay, and then I'm building a couple uh, passive malts because I've got um, and I've got my old Simmons SDS5 brain. When I first started getting into this, I was thinking, well, I need, you know, I need something for you know analog drums, and so I was looking at different modules and. You know, then I kind of had this kind of duh moment, and there's my SDS-5 brain sitting wow. underneath the cabinet here, collecting dust, doing nothing. So I've got that all wired into my uh, Eurorack system, and I can control that uh, via MIDI from Cubase Innuendo, or I can plug that in um, to either Pamela's or, uh, or the BeatStep Pro and trigger it that way. So it's kind of fun to mix and match the sounds and... Um, um, you know, the, uh, the unpredictability of, of having, uh, the randomness and the probabilities and, and, and the bursts and things like that are kind of fun to play with and kind of sit back and listen to things and I'll capture portions of some of these and, uh, reuse them in other places. And absolutely. And that makes a lot of sense because I was, I, was uh, I have been watching some of your tutorials on your YouTube channel. And I see a, you know, a lot of those examples as you just explained. And I really, and, and something that I've always really enjoyed oh, yeah. with modular synthesizers is the interface, which is basically you interfacing with those modules and how you are able to either let them control you or vice versa or meet them in the middle. Right. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. Um, a friend of mine, uh, turn me on to uh, the Cherry Audio uh, products, you know, the virtual uh, Eurorack, and he's making modules for that. And he said, "Yeah, once you do this, you'll never go back." <laughs> it's um, it's 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 you know, it's all the flexibility of Eurorack with uh, with preset recall, yes. you know. And um, so that, that looked interesting. So he got me set up with a uh, NFR version of that, and and uh, they gave me a bunch of modules, and he gave me all of his modules and I played around with that and it's it's interesting and it's a good learning tool um, to an extent um, you know the modules don't you know match of course one to one for the hardware modules I have but just the, the tactile interface and being able to reach out and grab a knob um, I've been a huge proponent of that forever you know back in the early days of uh, back when I was at Microsoft um, and um, and before that, uh, when I was doing work with um, 
uh, Frank Serafini um, doing post-production work for movies and that I always liked the hardware mixing interface instead of trying to do it, you know, with a mouse and a keyboard. Um, just, you know, being able to just reach out and grab something is far more efficient and I'm 100% sure that I get much better resort results uh, in the end and results a lot quicker uh, with hardware than I do with, you know, software. Yeah, it really does make a difference, and it really does change the sound that you produce. Yeah. The only thing is there's no one do. Every once in a while I get kind of lost in a thought. I'll have unplugged something, going, ooh, what, what happens if I plug this into there? You know, which is one of the beautiful things about modular is the, the, the unknown. Hey, I wonder what if that goes out of the... What if, you know, I've got something cool going. It's like, well, well now if I add this in the chain or as another CV source... You know what happens, and sometimes I'll unplug something, and I'll be thinking, yeah, I'll do that. Oh, maybe I'll use something else, and I'll start thinking, and then I'll go, okay, wait, where was I? You know, everything stopped because I disabled the signal path somewhere along the line, and like, where did I unplug this from? <laughs> huh. Yes, it's very, it's very much a uh, science experiment, and which all goes right back into that whole education you were talking about. Right. Right, and you know, so as people ask me how you know how is the Eurac, I said it's it's glorious and it's frustrating and it's <laughs> spectacular and it's a pain in the ass and it's, you know it's 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 kind of all all of the above you know it's got its strengths and its weaknesses um, but just an, another tool in the toolbox for you know the creative sound absolutely and I, I just I have a ball, a ball with it sometimes I just come back here with nothing in particular in mind to do but just you know, I don't play. I don't play video games. I come back here and and goof around. You know, seeing what kind of weird sounds I can come up with. I have this patch in my uh, KB thirty seven that I just. That oh, cool! Out of the air. This is a different modulation sources. A lot of it is the uh, Dave Smith uh, feedback unit, and I've got uh, different LFOs going in and controlling different parameters in that with the uh, NW one. Sofer is a, an oscillator. Um, mixing those two, running a second power of the, of the dofer into a dirt filter, and breaking one of the elements of that back yeah. in there. But all this modulation, when certain things mix up, it doesn't make too bad. This, it's funny, I could, sometimes I'll just have that in the background while I'm, while I'm working, if I'm working on a document, not if I'm working on sounds, but um, some, it just tickles me. <laughs> I just love these sounds. <laughs> I think it does that for everybody. Oh, and you know, I walked away from the microphone. You might have a little part there. It might be harder to hear. Okay. Um, now, I was curious. You mentioned, um, you know, you're not big on video games, and honestly, neither am I. However, I was looking through your website, and it says you were worked, working on a Soundstage VR app. Is that something that uh, you've done a little work on? Yeah, uh, Soundstage VR um, was a big hit. Um, a guy that I worked with at uh, Disney created it uh, when our Disney project ended. Um, and um, uh, a guy named, uh, oh, shoot. Logan Olson. Logan Olson. Um, super smart guy. Uh, so he created it. Um, he he and I, he would talk about what, what he was doing and I would kind of give him, he'd say, you know, so as a musician, what would you, you know, would you like this and this and this? And so we go back and forth. And then, then when he was done or as he was doing it, then I started creating uh, the different sound sets for the different instruments. And he had loop players and keyboards and sample playback units. And you could, you had this big palette of instruments that you could put around you in a, in whatever situation, whatever, uh, orientation you wanted, um, and um, and and then perform with this in virtual reality, and it was a huge, huge hit, um, and so much so that it caught the attention of, um, I believe it was Google, who um, contacted Logan, hired him, they pulled his app off the market, and uh, <laughs> wow, and flew him and his wife 
uh, moved them out to the East Coast, and he's been working with them ever since on some secret projects. But uh, that was a big one. I worked on um, uh, some prototype game, uh, virtual reality games at Disney. I did uh, game audio. I've done a lot of game audio. Um, I just don't play a whole lot of video games myself. Um, which is now? What, what are you doing for 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 audio for video games? Um, sound sound effects and um, um, you know, like for for uh, soundstage, I did all the instrument sounds. Um, I worked on this ice climbing game for this guy, um, and he got hired off by another company, so he never completed it. He was another guy doing a kind of a one-off project himself. Um, but for the ice climbing game, we, we actually brought in, you know, I don't have any ice, you know, or we don't have many ice pick sounds and n nothing as granular as what he wanted for his game. So I went out and bought a hundred pound solid block of ice and brought it into uh, my recording room and lined the studio with plastic because uh, I knew the ice and, you know, eventually water was going to go everywhere. And then... Um, uh, he's an actual ice climber too, Ben Sherman, who's the producer of that product. Um, and he brought in his, uh, his big clamp-ons that go onto his shoes, the big spikes, and his ice picks and other tools. And we recorded um, this block of ice being chipped away at. And there were certain types of hits where he got a good, you know, you got a good bite in it or you, you kind of bounced off um, things that, you know, to a, a real ice climber, which was him, um, he wanted in his game, he wanted it as authentic as possible. So we, uh, I used, um, I used a SM57 for real close-up hits and the impact part. And then I used my binaural recording head that I built um, uh, for stereo recording. And then above that, I put a... Uh, stereo AKG microphone above that. So I was recording two stereo and one mono tracks and then kind of used the best of what those uh, provided uh, mixed together for the sounds that I gave him. Did you, was that a... But it was, yeah, it was interesting. And then then we had to dispose of this giant of ice. That's quite a feat. <laughs> Melted out in the backyard now, for a couple of days. Did you have, you said you had, you uh, created a particular microphone? Yeah, I, I um, when I was at Disney, we were looking at doing um, bi using binaural audio for a three to get a three D effect. Um, so we um, they had the uh, Aachen uh, head um, in the Disney studios. Um, we went over there and experimented around with that, um, and then I decided to build my own. So I bought a mannequin head. Um, off of eBay and uh, bought a couple oh, yeah. uh, nice little small compact microphones, like lavalier sized microphones. Um, and the uh, but the uh, the uh, dummy head that I bought didn't have properly molded ears. They didn't look like real ears. They were kind of you know representations of ears, so to speak. Um, so I did some research. Um, and ended up finding these lifelike, wow. I mean, really lifelike ears on eBay um, that people use when they're studying acupuncture. And it's a, it's got a little square base on it. It's the size, the shape, and the feel, and the color, and everything. It feels like a, feels like a regular, a real ear. Um, and then um, I had the guys at the shop at uh, Disney uh, cut holes in the side of the mannequin head perfectly that fit the, the bases of these. And I put my microphones in and did some recordings uh, based on my research, which was basically having the, the microphone pointing towards the, and then instead of pointing forward, like, like you know, if you were the he head, pointing forward like where you were looking, the microphones were pointing back into uh, the ear itself, getting all that reflection off of that. Um, and that was my assumption. Right, using the ear canals. Right. That was my assumption that was going to get the best sound. So I tried that. And they had, you know, binaural is kind of a black art. Um, some people don't even hear it, you know, the 3D aspect of it. Um, some people are, you know, sure. soft, 
as, as far as their opinion of it. And some people are gun, you know, totally gun ho over it. And, um, you know, it affects different people differently. But um, the results I had were okay. Some of it worked really well and some of it didn't. So I bought another set of ears and positioned the microphones differently. I started thinking it through and thought, okay, if I have the capsules facing forward and then use the, you know, have them sticking out far enough so that the side, you know, where the cancellation occurs um, is, is sticking out and getting what's in that ear there, you know, basically doing the exact opposite of what I'd done before. Um, and that, to me, I get better results from. But now I'm, um, I'm doing some demonstrations for a, a new company out of Poland called uh, Zilia. It's Z-Y-L-I-A. And they have a, um, a ball microphone that's a little oh. bit bigger than a softball. And it's got 19 microphones in it. And it connects all via a single USB cable. So via that, you can get, um, um, you, can you can record with that. It records all 19 channels. And then you can uh, dump that out into individual tracks. It'll isolate different tracks. If you put that, say, in the middle of a band, say you've got a couple acoustic guitar players and somebody playing percussion or a drum set and somebody singing, you can just put that in the middle of the band um, and later on go back in and you could see uh, in their software interface where the energy, you know, where the signal's coming from. So you say, okay, that's where the, that's where the uh, guitar, main guitar player was. So I'll make a channel there. And you could say, okay, I'm going to have this, this audio beam or where it's picking up, I'm going to have it very narrow here. Or I want it more open because I want a little bit more ambient. Um, and then you set up another one for, you know, all, however many people are performing. And then you can extract that. It uses the microphones facing the players for recording. And then depending on the mode, it can use the uh, microphones on the side and the opposite end of the, mic of the ball uh, for rejection to make those tracks as um, sort of discreet and isolated as, as they can be from a uh, single point wow. source. Um, and then it, from there, you can also uh, uh, spit it out into first, second, and third order um, ambisonics. So it's a really interesting product. It's um, uh, just just hitting the U.S. markets now. I've, I've done one presentation with it. I'll be doing demos um, probably at the NAMM show uh, for the distributor. And, uh, and they're setting me up to do some demos around town here at some of the big studios uh, for some of the big producers and things. It has, it has a lot of really interesting uh, virtues to it for uh, quick setup and for ambience. You know, for ambience, get 3D ambience. They have a demo where they put one of these mics inside of a piano, and while the track is playing, then you could take that, you know, where you said, okay, there's a channel here, and you can move that around in real time, and it's, it's facing, this is facing more uh, where the hammers are. This is, you know, as you move it around, it's facing more to the, the higher end notes or keep moving towards the lower end mo notes. Or wow. keep moving, go towards the the back end of the of the uh, string board, um, or get the reflection off of the um, off of the lid for the piano, or create different channels in all those positions and spit those out, and then mix that any way you want. It's pretty fascinating. And they've got some new product, I guess, that they're um, um, going to announce today at AES. So I'm waiting to hear what that is. Really? So I'm sure. I'll yeah <laughs> fantastic that's that's so fascinating yeah it's it's wild you know I, I i just love all this new technology you know i i built myself a um as well as that uh my binaural head um i built myself a uh a surround four channel uh recording kit using a road um zeppelin you know the big you know microphone holder windscreen um, I got some extra parts from the guys at Rode and um, mounted two stereo um, AKG microphones in there. Yeah. Uh, or Audio-Technica microphones in there. Um, and I've got two Sony uh, portable recorders um, that I mounted onto a s single holder that just goes around my neck so I don't have to hold on to those. So I've got my pole and my Zeppelin, and I can record you know, four-channel ambience, and it makes... 
does a really, really good job. It's really natural. I've done things like hanging it over the uh, pier to get the waves kind of coming and going. So if you listen to them in a surround room, uh, a room with surround speakers, you, you know, you get the waves coming like straight from you and washing over you to the back. It's just interesting sound. And just really good for ambience for some of the sound design work I do. So if I don't have something in my... I've got almost three terabytes of uh, sound effects in my library, but there's always something that you need that you don't have. So go out and grab that. Absolutely. It's a very handy tool. Yeah, yeah. But uh, now this uh, uh, Zillia mic um, may uh, make that kit obsolete. <laughs> my goodness. Oh, man. Yeah, it's it's a it's a neat product, and then you know being able to record, you know, the setup just one USB cable and and a laptop, and you know you're recording. It doesn't need you know gets its power from the USB port, and um, and you're good to go. Okay, it's, it's a pretty incredible product. It's pretty amazing, Rick. I was, um, you've you've mentioned some really iconic, amazing things today. I was curious, are there some other iconic moments in your career that we could talk about? Well, one of the, one of the things that I'm most proud of is uh, when I lived in uh, Washington State, um, I created a, um, I was working with a, a nonprofit music organization, and we would do these fundraisers, and we would donate money that would support music education. Uh, in Washington State. And I came up with the idea to create a custom license plate, a music-themed license plate that you could buy. And um, I think it was $18 from each one of those sales went back to our organization. It took us two years. We had to have two bills passed in the legislature. Washington State had a moratorium on new license plates because they, when they started opening it up, they had this flood of, and they just let everybody and anybody uh, come up with a license plate. They had ones for lighthouses and kind of, you know, mm -hmm. I don't know, crochet or there was some one one that was really odd that I think they sold, you know, forty plates or something for. So they they stopped all that. Anyways, we had to have a bill passed to get ours going. But um, so that was about seven or eight years ago. We got that going, and it's music matters is the uh, the theme of it and it's this <laughs> kind of cool orange license plate and i came up with the art i'm not a graphic artist at all um and if i had to draw something by hand it would look like a three-year-old <laughs> drew it but um I, I came up with the, the concept of what, what i thought the license plate should look like because i i wanted to appeal to young people because i thought young people will buy this a lot you know um but um anyways they ended up using my artwork for the license plate itself but as of last year, we've been selling the plates, or they have been now. Of course, I'm not uh, involved with the organization anymore. I'm back in California. Um, but they, um, as of last year, and they have these, these, uh, this event that we created called Play It Forward, where we have people come in and we have a big fundraising event. And last year, last year a couple months ago, they raised like $107,000 for music education, just from that event, plus the sale of the license plates. And the cool thing about the license plates is it's a self-perpetuating funding source. So about 80% of the people will buy the plate, will, will pay the extra fees to have their plates renewed again the next year. And so then our organization gets another $18 every year from that. So the first year we had, I don't know, four or 500 plates. Next year we had close to 1,000. And that keeps growing and growing and growing. Um, and then the, what's cool is the schools can do a fundraiser and they can have, so if, say my kid's going to school XYZ, and XYZ does a fundraiser and the kids, instead of selling chocolate chip cookie dough or pizza coupons, can sell license plates. So they, you know, basically they're not selling the plates, they're giving them the form. And the people can, uh, if you purchase a plate, you can t tell on the form what school you want that funds to go That's to. Genius. So hopefully what these schools are doing is they're doing these fundraisers year after year, and each year they're getting more and more and more and more money till eventually it becomes a very substantial sum every year that they're getting, and it just 
it just keeps feeding itself. That was that's kind of one of my 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 proudest moments, and you know, um, you know, it's music related, but uh, not music programming, but um, you know, other things. You know, I've got five platinum records for works that I've, that I've done with the Pointer Sisters and Motley Crue and Rat, and uh, one of my favorite bands, Yes, who um, I started working with in 1987. And became really good friends with um, Alan White. Today, he's still one of my best friends. And um, uh, in fact, I talked to him two days ago uh, when I was up in Seattle. I was trying to get together with him, and he and his wife both have bad colds. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've just been—I've been fortunate to meet a lot of great people and um, do some real meaningful things with them. the music matters. Uh, the work I did at Experience Music Project, creating. Um, uh, again, back to to music education, creating hands-on um, <laughs> musical instrument activities where people learn how to play guitar and bass and drums and vocals and use a mixing board, all in these little seven-minute um, uh, little exercises, uh, hands-on demonstrations. And we had MIDI guitars with lights in the frets so you could follow along by putting your fingers over the notes on the lights on the frets and uh, electronic drum pads with lights on them and keyboards with light-up keys and things like that. So in the, in the course of a seven-minute exercise, let's say, um, we teach people a little bit about the electric guitar, you know, kind of how it works, how to hold your hands, how to pick, how to fing finger the, uh, the notes, and then it teaches you like a real simplistic song. So it's on the guitar, it's yeah. Louie Louie. Dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. So you play... It shows you it. You play along the left hand part and the right hand part. Then you put the two together. When you put the two together, the music starts coming in, and you know you're playing music. And you know we could use the technology so you could just walk up and play something and it sounded amazing. But the idea is like, hey, playing guitar is hard, but in seven minutes I actually played something, so I can do this. You know. I can do this. You know, I played or I played a simple pattern. I made a uh, drum set, a me mechanized uh, drum set. We called the drum robot, where the drum set played itself. And then during the course of teaching you how to play a pattern, um, and then uh, um, it would say, "Okay, this part, you know, it plays the part. You get to watch it and listen to it and say, okay, now you're going to play the snare drum part.' So we turn off the snare drum, um, and the light still happens inside the drum where you're supposed to hit, and it. Tells you how to play it and where to play it in the timing, and then you put play that part while the bass drum pedal hits the bass drum and um, sticks inside the toms hit that and sticks under the cymbals hit the cymbals, and then introduces you to the bass drum. So next time next uh, part of the uh, program you learn you playing the bass drum and the snare drum together, you know, and then the third part you're playing the hi hat the bass drum and the snare drum together while the rest of the drum kit plays itself. So you know, a lot of that, and it was just really rewarding to walk through there when we opened in 2000 <laughs> and seeing all these people f from seven-year-old kid playing the bass guitar with his mom kind of gleaming overhead to this elderly couple probably in their early 80s remixing uh, Sweet Dreams by the Eurythmics uh, that, that, we, that we got. Uh, Dave Stewart gave that to us, um, and that was that was our track. We tracks that we had for mixing. So we had say, tracks of "Sweet Dreams," and this elderly couple remixing this on a real Mackie mixer, and going, "Wow, let's look at this, honey. I'm putting re you know, this is reverb, and it's in this echo sound on on the this woman's voice, you know." And it was just so rewarding. You know, they were touching so many people. In the first year, they had over eight hundred thousand people go through that museum. Wow, <laughs> that's amazing. Um, it it, it kind of yeah. re refers to, it, it kind of reminds me of you know back in I think when I grew up in the eighties, uh, was it uh, Simon Says, where you had to repeat patterns. Exactly. Yeah. 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 It was very much like that. And there, my daughter was um, uh, born in eighty seven, and when she was like four or something, I bought back then there was this. Really well done system. I don't know whatever happened to it. It was called the Miracle Piano. And it was software and this inexpensive keyboard that hooked up to the Macintosh. And there were, you know, it taught taught you to play the piano. And there were games, and the games involved, you know, reading the notes and playing the, the keyboard, you know, to 
to play the game and and uh, win the game and and little fun little areas just to goof around in and different sounds and um it was really really well done my daughter still talks about that she's 32 now that's amazing you know it just you just reminded me about a new product that uh was on a uh by by Roly. they put out this little uh i think it's a one octave keyboard called a lumi and basically it's a base it's a keyboard controller where all all the triggers all the keys light up and it you can te- you can learn songs oh. that, you know that are in the program in the app which i think is the noise app that they put out for their products and there you can actually learn how to play an instrument you know a, a song things like that and you continue on if you're interested yeah oh that's cool yeah, even Casio Casio has those uh, the L M, or I'm sorry, the L key L L K line of products. L K stands for lighted key, um, and there's and there's three different levels of of uh, teaching you how to play. First one, it's just it just it lights up the note and you hit it, and when you hit, when you hit that, then the next one lights up, you know, and until the the third level um, where you've got to you've got to play in time, you know, but, but the key lights up showing you where to play. And it's really, um, it's, it's a really cool. And you can download new songs off the internet and put them into your keyboard for two or three bucks a piece. It's a really cool product. That's amazing. I love it. That's one of the wonderful things I've uh, really appreciated about electronic music since I got back into it is the education that there's so many companies that are pushing the education and encouraging people to try new things with the technology that's available. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's it's really interesting. You know the the um, all the cool things that they're able to do today to just to to make learning more accessible and simpler and uh, and you know more understandable. Um, it, there, there's just a ton of great products out there. Just too many to <laughs> too many to keep an eye on. Yes, um, Rick, I really appreciate you doing this interview with me, man. This was a wonderful conversation. I had so much fun talking with you today. Well, thanks, Corey. I appreciate you calling me, and it's really nice to talk to you as well. Get to know you a little better as well. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I wanted to let you know. So up here in San Francisco. Um, I, I actually host, I MC a live uh, meetup uh, once a month. It, we're actually doing it tomorrow tomorrow night. And if, it's called Peaked. And basically, I, I, uh, I book two musicians a month. And my friend, who I is one of the co- is the co-creator, really the creator of it, my friend Rich Hogman, um, he does the audiovisual side of it. He sets up all the audio and he does a three-point camera view and we live streamed on, on YouTube. And basically we give each musician about 20 minutes or so for them to play whatever they choose to play. And then I interview them about their set for about maybe five, 10 minutes and in front of a live audience. So, and then we open up the questions to, to uh, the audience as well. If they have some questions that I cool. didn't field and what I'm and if you're ever in the Bay area over in San Francisco, if you ever want to play, man, please let me know. And I'd love to have you come by and do whatever you would like. Oh, that sounds like fun. Yeah, that, that would be great. I would love to do that. Cool. Well, in the future, let me know, man, maybe uh, next year sometime. Okay. Yeah. Sounds good, Corey. Yeah, I'll let you know. I, I may be up there more, um, you know, with some uh, work that's coming up. So I'll keep you posted. Cool. Rick, thank you very much. You have a nice day. Thanks, Corey. Talk Bye. to you soon. Bye-bye.